This is Bamsey's Humanity First Podcast. I am Chris Ryan, along with Peter Evers. Thanks for joining us for the first show of 2021. As 2021 has come about, as uh, I said on the show, I believe last week, um, I saw a sign in a uh, doctor's office which said, um, I'm interested in 2021, but first let me read its terms and conditions. <laughs> and uh, I think that everybody has had kind of that approach to uh, to 2021. But, you know, as we talked about last week, it's, it's kind of up to us what um, 2021 is, what our lives are. And you know, COVID, to a large degree, has um, created opportunity for us to take a step back and to build the base of our lives uh, up uh, the way that we wish to. And, you know, no matter what the circumstance is, you can take a step back and reevaluate. Like, what do I want to do? What are my priorities? What are the things that I wish to accomplish? Do I want to engage, you know, in self-care more than caring for others? Do I like the job that I have? Um, I was just laid off. Should I look at something, you know, in a different field? Should I look at job retraining? Should I look at uh, getting a degree in something else? Um, you know, what is the future that I wish to have? And you know, COVID has provided, um, in my view, you know, kind of an opportunity in that realm to reassess, to determine what we wish to do moving forward, what's important, what isn't important. And that's generally, you know, the themes that surround a new year, you know, to begin with. And the question is, you know, are things going to be different in terms of how we go about making and maintaining those resolutions in 2021? Yeah, I mean, isn't this the... Um the strangest social experiment ever. And, and, and researchers must be just sort of rubbing their hands, thinking both on a macro level, how are we going to deal with this new, this brave new world with a vaccine? How do we take some of the things that we've learned during the pandemic? And we talk, you know, a lot about, about work stuff like our space, like the continued use of uh, Zoom. Um, but on a personal level, has it had any lasting uh, effect on our work-life balance and the way that we see uh, how we move through the world. And I hope so. In some ways, I hope so, Chris. I think, you know, one of the biggest uh, things that we have to contend with is how we maintain our own happiness in our own lives and how we don't allow our jobs to overtake our lives. And I think people have probably had uh, time to sit back and, and think about that. You know, I think about... Um, you know, over my career in terms of layoffs that have had to happen um, when I worked, certainly when I worked for the state, and I would check in with people who had lost their jobs six months later. And many of them said, you know what, it gave me the impetus to do something else. It made me think about my life in a different way. And I think the resolution that we all have to have is, you know, let's be thoughtful about what we've learned. Um, let's be thoughtful about what we lost and, and getting those things back. But also what's important to us, because I think we've had a refresh. We've hit this refresh button about, you know, our home life, um, about how um, our families uh, have been tested and how they've stuck together, um, how we've not been able to see each other. Think about the big parties that we'll have, you know, to celebrate each other and get back together. And so um, I, I, I hope that we can be optimistic about what this year brings us. Uh, and I hope we can take some of those lessons uh, and move them forward, because I believe that we've learned a lot. And I believe there's lots to learn. And, you know, um, family is everything. 
uh, and we've reassessed that. And I know that, that you've spoken about that uh, as well, Chris, over the past few months about there's, you know, it's different. We can take some things with us and we'll celebrate getting some of the things back that we've missed. Yeah, I think, um, you know, family has certainly changed. Um, and, you know, the immediate family has obviously spent a lot more time together. But, you know, some of our... Um, other aspects of our family we've seen a lot less of. And with that, you know, we have, in my view, um, come to appreciate those you know, relationships. I mean, whenever there is loss, whether it's uh, loss from an individual leaving this earth or the end of a relationship or um, a something that precludes you from engaging with others, such as this pandemic, there's a reevaluation that takes place. And in this environment, I think that we have... Um, seen what you know we have missing from our lives the travel the family engagements those types of things you know we all want more of now um in my view and that's something that this pandemic has allowed is is it is not a finality such as when a person leaves this earth um in that you're not going to engage with them on this earth um but it provides opportunity for the future in that how are you going to go about, you know, you miss this person. How do you go about fixing that? And that's something that I think is significant in this is that we can assess, have that time to assess, and then we can fix it and um, figure out ways, plan trips, you know, down uh, six months to 12, six to 12 months down the road and figure out how you want to, um, prioritize your relationships in your life to include those who you are missing in this environment. Yeah. And I guess finally remember that we're all part of the solution here and, you know, and science is science. And, you know, I, I don't want to push political agenda, but we have to listen to the public health experts who do know uh, what the, what the way out is of this. And so vaccinations, incredibly important the, the idea of not exposing each other. I mean, it was it was sad to see that I think 60 million Americans traveled over this uh, over this holiday period and that we might be in for another surge. But we've got to realize that our actions and our behaviors influence how quickly we get out of this. Um, and with the vaccine coming, um, like like we said last week, you know, I will be when it is my turn to have that vaccine, I shall be queuing up to do that and uh, and would encourage folks that um, that really to pay, play a part and uh, and really consider uh, getting the vaccine. Same. Uh, I will be there as soon as, um, you know, it is my turn to uh, to get the vaccine. And, you know, I think that we find ourselves in a situation right now where, yeah, we're going to see more COVID cases over the next couple months than we have seen before. And it's going to continue to rise before it gets better. And we have to be cognizant of that. Um, things are going to be remain open to a large degree and we're going to have to make decisions and good decisions um, based upon, you know, what we feel is the best for our families, coworkers, et cetera. Um, and because we're going, it's, things aren't going to be closed. There's not going to be a stay at home order in my view, um, in Massachusetts or the surrounding States. So decisions are going to have to be reached by individuals and with great freedom comes great responsibility and our ability to manage this, uh, pandemic is going to be based upon how we go about making those choices. I am Chris Ryan. That is Peter Evers. We're going to hand things over now to Peter, who's going to introduce our guest. 
Hello, everybody, and welcome to the podcast today. Uh, we're very privileged to have a special guest with you, with us, Tracy Rosen, our program director from uh, the, our home base team, is with us to talk about a few things today. Uh, welcome, Tracy. Hello. Thank you for having me, Peter. Well, thank you for uh, carving out some of your busy schedule. Um, so there's a few things I think we'd like to talk about today, um, and obviously one is about the home base team. And you know, I often think about um, about the FAMSI services this, as this network of jewels that covers a large part of the state, um, providing remarkable services, and yet they're connected in lots of different ways. And, and that's really how we think about the human condition, right? That, that we don't talk about diagnoses and we don't talk yeah. about conditions, we talk about human beings. And when you, when you think about the wraparound model that the, uh, the home-based team employs, it really is the embodiment of uh, strength-based uh, and individually carved out um, planning that puts people at the center uh, of their own treatment. And if you think about that, Tracy, um, over the last 20 years, that's been a massive change from, you know, the sort of maintenance of people in their, in their illnesses to the, um, the reaching of potential for all human beings. And I think in some ways the home-based team absolutely uh, embodies that belief. That, and so I'd like to talk about that. <clears throat> and the other thing I'd like to talk about is the Read to Succeed program. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and how and what you think about that and how crucial that is for court-involved kids, um, you know, um, who have their struggles. And, you know, I don't think that people in the public necessarily realize that um, kids who um, have had a rough time in terms of their development early on and, and later on into their childhood development um, really lack some of the basic skills, uh, not right. for their own fault, but because of their... Um, lack of access to education, quality education and family disruption, that kind of thing. So the idea of providing services that bring people back into the frame in terms of employability and, uh, uh, and being productive members of this uh, society is a really important conversation. And then thirdly, I think, uh, as we just discovered, as we were talking just before the show, is the work-life balance thing for young, uh, for new parents of, of, of young children and I, I, I know now that you have 19-month-old twins, uh, and um, and what a time! <laughs> what a time <laughs> to be um, raising 19-month-old at this incredibly important part of their maturation and development. So those are the things I'd like to talk about as as we go forward, um, and um, and just sort of put it in the context of where your program and your staff sort of fit within the Bamsey jigsaw puzzle. So sure. Um, Great. So, um, so maybe we can start uh, with home based team and talk a little bit about the program, where where it resides, who we serve, and a little about a bit about wraparound would be great. Sure. So, the home based team is a um, in home therapy and therapeutic mentoring um, hybrid program. Um, we service youth ages three to twenty one in um, the Brockton and surrounding areas. So our office is in Brockton, um, but then we can service really anywhere around that area. So Brockton, the Bridgewaters, Easton, Stoughton, um, Avon sometimes. Um, but essentially, you know, we're part of the larger wraparound um, children's behavioral health initiative um, that was developed out of the Rosie D lawsuit. And um, the Rosie D lawsuit had come together because, you know, families in Massachusetts, had, um, you know, 
come to the court to say that uh, Mass Health and uh, Medicare weren't um, enough for their children in terms of services if they had serious emotional needs or um, behavioral, you know, needs. So um, in-home therapy and therapeutic mentoring is like a piece of that. And, you know, I say, you know, therapeutic mentoring is probably one of the most important um, services for youth because it's that one-to-one support where um, a, you know, mental health professional brings a youth out into the community and teaches them the real life skills in the community. So, you know, let's learn how to apply for a job. Let's learn how to socialize with your peers. Um, You know, let's learn how to use public transportation. And those, you know, skills are so useful, but also like that relationship between the therapeutic mentor and the youth is usually the most intense relationship or the the closest relationship. And that mentor, you know, is really able to get the youth to present, you know, really what they need in order for the entire team to kind of help. So I, I find that the mentoring piece is just such an important piece of the puzzle in terms of getting the right care to the right kid. I have a question on that, Peter, if I could just jump in for a second. Yeah, yeah. I mean, what is the... Um the data indicate in regards to kids that get that therapeutic treatment at that point in time versus kids that don't? And what is the um, real difference between the kids that receive it versus don't receive it? So they're finding, you know, overall that like there's a decrease in hospitalization and need for longer term treatment. Um, I know that there was a time previously where youth with commercial insurance weren't able to access these services because until last year, these were only services for um, mass health clients and the youth that have like commercial insurance that were denied these services because they weren't able to access them, you know, ended up in like a DMH program where they needed longer term services or they were hospitalized more frequently or their behaviors had become so significant that they were hard to keep in the community. So like giving these youth, this giving youth the services earlier is able to kind of help, you know, stabilize the youth prior to needing like these larger long-term services. And, and can I, can I piggyback a little bit on that? Actually, I'm not piggybacking. I'm just changing the subject. Completely. <laughs> Appreciate your <laughs> honesty. <laughs> You're very welcome. Um, therapeutic mentors, a couple of things about that. Because uh, I, I agree with you, Tracy. I think, you know, when you look at systems of care, it is the most intense relationships that are the most productive. And mm-hmm. also those relationships um, where a young person can relate um, to the person that they're working with. What does it take to become a therapeutic mentor? What are you looking for when you're, when you're trying to hire those folks? Yep. So we're looking for someone with, um, they have to be at least 21 years or older. And they have to have a, um, preferably a bachelor's degree in the field. So either human service, criminal justice, um, it's a little broader than, um, you know, clinician work, but it's um, education, um, any of those fields qualify as a, a bachelor's level um, mentor. And is it somebody who has lived experience, for instance? Nope, it's not. Um, we do have a piece where, you know, we can hire peer mentors. 
Um, so there is now that component, but you do not have to have lived experience. You should, um, you know, best case scenario, have some experience working with youth. Um, but you do not have to have lived experience. And if I could make just just one sort of broader comment, um, 2004 was the Rosie D uh, versus mm-hmm. Rom- Romney. Um, and it was, it's interesting because a lot of clinical people always say never let a judge um, uh, decide you know, a clinical practice. And I used to believe that. But if you mm-hmm. look at Rosie D, I believe it's one of the most successful consent decrees in the history of Massachusetts. Absolutely. We went from providing either you're in the hospital or you're in therapy to mm-hmm. around about 26 levels of cares for, yeah. care for kids over the last decade or so. Uh, and partly that's because the state of Massachusetts said, you know what, we're going to agree to the consent decree and we're going to fund it. And they put $500 million into that. And your program and the CSAs and all of those programs are a living testament to a state doing the right thing. And it really has... Um, changed the face of treatment for kids in the state of Massachusetts, I believe. Absolutely. And, you know, and you, you see it, you know, in the youth that we serve, like it has made a huge impact, you know, for the youth in mentoring or the youth in, you know, in home therapy. Um, It, it really has made a positive impact and decreased the number of kids, you know, in residential settings or hospital settings. And, and, you know, when you think about the number of kids that were in residential uh, prior to 2004 and you look at it now, um, you know, not only um, was it the right thing to do clinically, but um, we're proving, I think, that the expenditures are less because, you know, as I'm sure you probably know, it costs around about $380,000 a year to keep a kid in a residential program. Some children do need that. There's no question about that. But if you can avoid that, the outcomes later on in life for children who maintain in their commu- communities are, is just spectacular as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. Significantly better as well, yeah. COVID has obviously had an effect on everything, and I'm curious as to what you feel You know, the COVID-19 effect has been on the kids in those residential um, settings, but also um, individuals that um, are in challenging households. And what has remote learning and being in those households on a more consistent basis where parents are also going through difficult times in terms of uh, employment, um, substance misuse, and across the board, um, you know, what is the kind of the unseen effect of this going to be on those individuals 5, 10, 15 Mm -hmm. years down the road? You know, I'll I'll say um, in terms of the families we serve, um, you know, it it runs the gamut. It is apparent that families are struggling with remote learning, having youth that have, you know, emotional or behavioral needs um, and how to balance it all. You know, you need to be at work at nine, but your kid needs to log in at seven and, you know, how do you manage making sure your youth is, you know, online and doing, you know, their schoolwork? Um, it's it's a challenge. And, you know, families in the in-home therapy world are echoing, you know, how tired they are in having to manage every Zoom meeting. Um, you know, I think there's that piece. I think if you have a youth that's in a, a, a mostly positive environment, you know, 
they're having Zoom fatigue, they're uh, missing their friends and how to socially interact in a way that isn't virtual. And then you have the youth that are in not positive environments. And, you know, we're just not getting the same, you know, experience of having a youth go to school and having that positive environment outside of their home for eight hours a day. So I think in our world, you know, helping youth continue to have that safe space, even though it's virtual, to be able to talk about um, what's happening at home and and help them to learn to develop coping skills amidst, you know, an unforeseen pandemic. Yeah. You know, we, you know, we went from like being, you know, our normal nine to five every day to, you know, being at home. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, and actually, could I go off piste a little bit here because yeah. uh, because I'm I know that I'm talking to two parents of young and very young um, children, um, and you know, under the best circumstances, this must have been an incredible challenge for you. And I know we're talking to you know hundreds of staff members um, in in the Bamsley family about this who are going through the same kind of things. So I'm just interested you know, on your perspective of that, Chris, I know a little bit because you've been pretty open around some of the difficulties of homeschooling and how you've been pitched into, you know, being a, uh, a teacher and a school nurse and, and everything else. Um, but, if, but I'm just interested from both of you on your perspective on, you know, what is, how has it been, how have you managed to sort of keep uh, morale up in the, in the, in the household uh, and, and and what do you see for the future in terms of your your hopes and you know getting back to a normal life? Maybe I'll start with you, Chris. Yeah, I I would say um, you just gotta have to embrace the chaos and um, try to you know, to manage it to the best of your ability, but um, to embrace the situation. And you know, my parenting philosophy has been always to you know have try to bring humor into any circumstance to make things fun. And, you know, whether it's the gallows humor type of thing or whether it's, you know, just everyday life and occurrences and just kind of rolling with the punches and making things, um, making light of, of things. That's part of, um, of my approach. Um, but in all seriousness, you know, I, I do have a lot of concerns about, um, you know, K through two um, kids in this uh, environment and, you know, what they are missing out on in you know, the fundamental aspects of their um, learning, you know, the reading, the writing, the uh, math elements, the very basic things that are needed in order to have success. And, you know, my, um, you know, I watched this firsthand with, with Brennan, who is uh, in second grade now. And, you know, the latter portion of first grade was all remote learning and trying to teach him those, um, you know, fundamental principles. And, you know, I think about basically an entire nation of those kids, and some of which are, you know, parents uh, are engaged to varying degrees. So um, I think that that's going to be a, a major challenge moving forward is um, are they going to go back and have those fundamentals taught to kids who were unable to really pick them up during this time period? Or are we going to you know, gloss it over and kind of just move forward um with those uh those kids yeah that's a, i agree that sort of broadening of the gap that might exist already between 
those kids who you know have engaged parents or you know parents who have uh, their struggles and, and because and kids that don't yeah peter when those kids go along they're going to check out in high school like if they don't have the fundamental abilities to to read and to write and uh in middle school like when kids get frustrated or anybody gets frustrated Quitting is like one of the first things that comes to mind, right? So I think that um, that's going to be a major concern uh, moving forward is, you know, this millions of kids out there, are they going to move forward and engage or is there going to be um, a a generation of kids that are kind of left behind, particularly the ones who are, you know, in those highest uh, risk categories, Tracy? Right, right. Tracy, and I know that you probably have a different perspective having 19-month-old twins. (laughs) (laughs) So I have 19-month-old twins. And, um, you know, when this all started, um, one was crawling and one was not. Just, you know, she was just standing, uh, not standing, she was sitting up. So, you know, we have gone through a pandemic in which I have been home since they were 10 months old um, till now they're 19 months old. And... You know, learning to manage a nine to five job with two working parents, um, two very rambunctious twins and, um, you know, a dog and a cat. Let's add it in. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Has been challenging. But, you know, my husband and I both, you know, look at each other and it's like without COVID, you know, when in the history have parents been allowed or or gotten the opportunity to be there for their children's, you know, milestones. So we have been there for the walking, mm. you know, the talking. Um, they're both now out of their cribs. Um, so, you know, I've gone from, you know, barely being able to move to I now have toddlers that are running around the house and out of their cribs. And I've been here for all of it. Um, you know, and, and amidst trying to, you know, work my nine to five, you know, I find that sometimes you have to take that space and just sit with your toddler and like, you know, this email is going to have to wait five minutes because in this moment, my toddler needs me to read this book with them, <laughs> you know, and, and embracing that, like, this is a once in a lifetime opportunity um, has really been how I've been able to manage and continue um, through everything. That's kind of what every parent wants. I mean, every parent, you know, talks about the fact they wish they were there for, for every single thing. And they were, you know, a part of their child's growth, particularly, you know, for, um, you know, for men and, uh, men very often, you know, do not have those opportunities to, uh, to be around. And, you know, I made a, a conscious effort to kind of work as much as possible in work life around being able to do things with the kids every single day. And um, that was prior to COVID. And, you know, I think that a lot of times we, and for good reason, focus on a lot of the negatives of the COVID environment. But there are certainly um, positives and an opportunity to take a step back and to be engaged with your kids um, if you are a working parent um, is a real opportunity. And, you know, we can focus on how difficult it is and all the chaos of, Oh, I have to do this. I have this, you know, Peter's waiting on my email and I, we got to do, I got to get this email to Peter or I can take a step back. (laughs) I couldn't blame Tracy. I barely know her. Um, And so, so take a step back and say, you know what? Uh, We're playing, we're playing football in the backyard. Now my phone's going over here 
and it has allowed for us to kind of reset our lives and determine priorities and to if we wish to have that family first environment we can do that and you can be there for everything that your kids are doing you make sure you don't miss anything mostly now because my kids aren't doing anything um so there's nothing there's nothing to miss there's no games there's no concerts thankfully um so yeah there's that aspect of it as well um but you know you you get that opportunity with this to determine what your priorities are and to build off of that moving forward and to kind of create the base of your life that you want that you really couldn't before i think that's a really good perspective i also you know one of the things that annoys me is um and quite often on facebook and twitter they'll put pictures up of you know the first the second world war and say this generation had to fight through a war get over it well you know this isn't that generation and i think this generation has um, and th- th- it's an odious comparison, I think, is what I'd say, because what you have in front of you is the difficulties you have in front of you. And um, I think those words are very uh, optimistic. Yet at the same time, um, in not many generations have there been the need in, in an economy for both parents to be working full time to sustain a mortgage payment, which is enormous uh, in and around in Massachusetts, especially. Um, and, you know, pay for daycare and all those different things. So it is odious to compare different generations, different times. This is a difficult time. I think the thing with most um, uh, outcomes for human beings, it is about hope. It's about um, one's uh, ability to see things optimistically uh, and and see a future. And uh, certainly you two have, um, have uh, described that. And I think that was really helpful um, but can I just tease out a thread that um, that we mentioned before? And actually, Chris mentioned when we were talking about the gap uh, and worrying about the gap between um, kids' opportunities and this whole uh, ability to read. You're, you're absolutely right. A lot of the work that I've done in the past has shown that when kids can't read, they feel completely intimidated, they're embarrassed, and they withdraw. And the first thing they do often is is act up and behave uh, badly so that they can exclude themselves from the um, uh, from the horrible feeling of, of feeling you know inadequate um, and then so read to succeed is a is is a great program that addresses some of those things and I think we take for granted Tracy um, reading um, those folks of us who you know were exposed to reading at the right age um, who had a learning environment that allowed us to decode um, allowed us to uh, understand comprehension and fluency and all of those different things which are taught in Re- Read to Succeed. So can you just give us a little thumbnail of the the kind of person that we're serving here and the kind of work that we do with Read to Succeed? Sure. So uh, Read to Succeed is a partnership with the Brockton Juvenile Court System. Um, it was developed when, you know, a judge had noticed that there were youth coming through the system that couldn't even read um, the charges being brought up, up, up against them or, um, you know, their name, they, they couldn't write their name. Um, so, you know, they partnered with Bamsey to create a program in which we teach youth how to read. So we bring in um, youth that are currently in the Brockton public, um, sorry, Brockton juvenile court system. And we meet with them once a week and we help teach them to read, how to debate, how to write Um, And we make sure that they have those fundamental skills that are so important in being able to, you know, have a job, have a career um, and, you know, be a a 
a positive member in society. Because so often you turn to um, illegal activity if they don't know how to read because, you know, what else is there for them? And, you know, they don't want to tell their friends they can't read because then they're going to, you know, face ridicule and judgment. Do you, um, and there's a different way that uh, <clears throat> that young adults learn to read than, you know, three, four, five-year-olds, right? There's a right. different a different way that we have to approach that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we actually, um, we use, like, you know, each youth has, like, a free reading time um, in which we give them a book of their choice to read. And then we present them with, um, you know, real-life situational articles to read about, um, you know, like, really debate topics, but, like, um, something like, you know, marijuana, you know, should it be legalized or not? You know, that's a, a common topic that they want to talk about and they have a lot of feelings about. So giving them, you know, this topic that they care about, letting them read on it, teaching them the words that they're looking for. Um, we also teach them the vocabulary um, words and help them use them in sentences. Um, gives them, you know, more of a voice, but also helps them, you know, get those fundamental skills um, during yeah. their yeah, I mean, it's so important. I, I remember um, being involved in a voluntary program in England years ago, and um, they, they they used to put these books in front of you know, uh, of adults, uh, Jack and Jill, I think. I think actually it was called, what was it called, Tom? What was it called here? There was a, another name for those books. It was like Tom and Jane or something like that. Oh, they Dick were, Jane? Yeah, yeah, that's it. Yeah. Those kind of books. See Dick Jane run, see Jane run, see Dick. That's yep. right. That's right. Well, you know think for a minute about how humiliating that might be for somebody who is 19, 20 years old, who is, is reading that. I think that that sort of alternative sourcing of, of, uh, of educational materials is incredibly important. And how successful would you say it was? How, how are you measuring that kind of success? So, you know, we find it, you know, intensely successful. You know, they talk about in the very beginning, there was a youth that he couldn't even write his name. Um, and he had actually signed up for the program a second time so that he'd be able to learn to write his name. Um, you know, the youth show up, right? So if you're measuring in terms of, um, you know, attendance, they're there. Every week, they're there. They participate. You know, you're not getting youth that are um, unwilling to engage in the process. And they enjoy it. Like, they, they you know, write at times their life story and tell us everything that happened and where everything went wrong and where they are now, mm-hmm. you know, um, it's, it's a very positive experience for these youth and um, they seem to really get a lot out of just these, you know, I believe it's usually 12 weeks. So 12 hours, you know, of experience with, you know, multiple professionals in a room yeah. helping them learn. Yeah, I mean, I you know, all I can think of is that, that, that you know, after that, and learning to read, it just opens so many doors and, you know, makes a bigger and brighter window on the world for, for young people. So, uh, so thank you. Well, Tracy, this has been fantastic. And I, I really appreciate, actually appreciate both of you talking about some of the difficulties and the positives around managing a pandemic. And I think people will really relate to that. So really appreciate you coming on. And one of the things that happens when people do so well on these podcasts is they ask to come back and talk again. So hopefully you'll do that. Sounds good. Thank you so much for having me. 
Thank you. That's Tracy Rosen along with uh, Peter Evers. You've been listening to the Humanity First podcast. Uh, Bamsies, look at what's going on inside and outside the organization. I am Chris Ryan. Have a great rest of the day, everybody.